2: WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Coming up today, we'll learn about the trap sushi parties at Monday Night Garage, hear from the youngest certified farmer in Georgia, and check in with music contributor Vaughn Phoenix for this month's Punk Black To Go. But first, before Bela Fleck, many people thought of the banjo as a musical instrument confined to bluegrass, country, and folk settings. But Fleck's groundbreaking performances have taken the banjo through every musical genre imaginable, including jazz, rock, world beat, and classical. The 16-time Grammy Award winner is currently on tour in support of his new album, My Bluegrass Heart, which earned him the 2022 Best Bluegrass Grammy. Bela Fleck will perform at the Eastern on August 27th, and he recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes via Zoom and began by explaining when he first encountered the music that would go on to shape his life.
3: When I first heard... The banjo, I was at my grandparents' house in Queens because I grew up in New York City, and I heard this sound that just kind of shook me. I was like, what is that? (laughs) They were letting Ah. us watch TV, and the Beverly Hillbillies came on. Burn, he my brother who is a year older than me who goes by Louie by the way <laughs> for, for obvious reasons uh, we listened to it and I said whoa did you hear that and he was like what I said well wait it'll come back on at the end and It came back on and again, I said, there it is, that sound, you know, like some people it grabs them and it turns them upside down, and some people hate it, or could care less. I guess that's true of anything. At any rate, it took me a long time to get a banjo because I never thought I could play it, I didn't think anybody could possibly play one, it sounded impossible, but I was banjo aware from then on, and I always would look out for it any time it showed up. And then when I was, I guess, 13 or 14, Dueling Banjos came out. The Deliverance movie came out. And the banjo was like, you know, saturating everybody. It was a number one pop hit. And that's the point when my grandfather got me a banjo from a garage sale the day before I started high school. And then and then I just went crazy. I could not stop playing it. Once it was in my hands, I wasn't concerned with, you know, whether I could do it. I was just, just I just loved it. just loved it.
4: Hmm. Now... Although you've played and won awards for many different genres, how has bluegrass been fundamental to your musical sense of self?
3: Well, I mean, I always loved the banjo, but I always loved all kinds of music. And growing up in New York City, of course, I was exposed to a lot of things that you might not be exposed to if you grew up in a cabin home on the hill, So I wasn't tending towards being a a staunch traditionalist about it, and in fact followed people like Tony Trishka, who became my teacher, who was definitely a modernist. But uh, as time went on, the only real place I could work and make a living was in bluegrass bands. That was the only place that wanted a five-string banjoist, And, and so I got into that and went deeper into it, usually in progressive groups. But after a certain point, I moved down to Kentucky to try and get closer to the traditional sound, not the Yankee banjo sound but the uh, you know the hardcore North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee kind of banjo point of view and um, there's a lot of great musical rules to learn from it about tone and taste and timing and I tried to apply them to my more progressive music from then on it was all about time, bluegrass time, feeling the rhythm a certain way and the kind of sound people get out of their instruments like some of the greatest people like JD Crow for instance or revering Earl Scruggs who was you know definitely my favorite guy from the bluegrass world up until then. And so it just made me do a lot of work on my playing to get up to snuff to to the level that these guys were at. And it was a different point of view than the New York point of view, which was almost a jazz perspective on playing the banjo and bluegrass. There was some wild, crazy music happening up there. So for me it was about getting my basics together, my my fundamentals together. And then when I could apply that, you know, later on to joining Newgrass Revival or the Flectones or even playing with orchestras, I was getting a better sound. My my timing was better. I had a better musical foundational system.
4: Hmm. I'm going to skip ahead for a moment. In 2005, you traveled to Africa to explore the origins of the banjo. And for those unfamiliar with its history, would you talk a bit about how it came to America?
3: Sure. Yeah. It's interesting that most people in the United States, if you ask them where the banjo comes from, they would say, you know, Southern Appalachia. But it comes from Africa. It came over with the slaves, not voluntarily, obviously, but came over it did. (laughs) And what's also very interesting about the banjo is the slaves were um, often interacting with other musicians from different countries that were also here to play square dances and, and do music for functions on plantations and so the banjo music and the music of for instance the british isles ireland scotland germany it all started to mix up together and uh, and and when you get when you get get to bluegrass you've got a real conglomeration of different kind of musical forces happening under the hood of the music
4: it is fascinating and in fact you're in a documentary that further elaborates on these origins. It's so interesting that it's taken this long to understand the banjo's origins in Africa. I remember just being astonished talking with the Carolina Chocolate Drops about reclaiming the instrument, it, the style And really filling in this gap in our understanding, this gap in our history. And your 2020 album, The Ripple Effect, also addresses elevating that history. Would you talk about The Ripple Effect?
3: Sure. So after I went to Africa to make Throw Down Your Heart, I was able to bring a lot of musicians over here to tour on different runs. I had a real fondness for the folks from Mali because they gosh the, the musicianship is just so high there um, not that it isn't elsewhere but it's almost more um, relatable because they're they're great improvisers they play the blues they can just fly you know so at any rate when I was in Africa one of my wish list people was Tumani Diabate who's he's the preeminent kora player in the world very elegant musician and he wasn't there he wasn't in bamako when i was there filming so we couldn't get together but if, a little while later we did a workshop together and it was just so wonderful and he said hey i want to i want to be on your record it was already recorded and so i said well you can play on some stuff after the fact and and uh, he wanted to tour so we got together and started doing these tours around the states just the two of us and we started recording them and we ended up coming up with uh you know a whole set of, of music together that was just very very ripply. So, you know, when you think about the, the, the cora, which is essentially a big harp. I think it's a 20-string harp, if I have the number right. Uh, and the banjo, which is, you know, rippling constantly with the three-finger style. If you can lock your ripples together, you got something, you know. And we could. It was very easy to lock ripples with him. And then we could just fly. <laughs> and he was just so elegant, the way he played. And also, he's one of these guys who could shred your head off if he wanted to, but he doesn't really want to. He's just very happy to play support and encourage you got to stoke up the the sleeping giant and once you do he he lets it fly so it's a nice combination on that record of this very soothing duo rippling and then some some fireworks here and there too but also that combination of african music and bluegrass
4: yeah now the new album and tour celebrate a return to your bluegrass roots what are a few of your favorite songs on my bluegrass heart.
3: Well, you know, it's kind of like, what's your favorite child? <laughs> I know it's, you. It's hard. But um, I love Hog Point because it's it's a warm kind of a piece. It's got you know complexity in it, but it's there's a sort of a a sweetness to it. Strider, where I use the tuning pegs. It's a, it's an Earl Scruggs trick, where you tune the strings during the song, and I use, you know, one more tuner than most people do, and I, I tune into different keys uh, on it. But I think it's a pretty cool piece. Molly Tuttle plays on, and and Sierra Hull. But for, for me, the whole record is a community effort. It's, it's a connection with the people that I played with in the 80s that are still some of my best friends and some of the greatest musicians on the planet, talking about Jerry Douglas, Sam Bush, Stuart Duncan, Edgar Meyer, and then connecting with a new generation uh, of people that I really hadn't played with because I hadn't been on the scene. I've been off doing all these other things. So the people like Sierra, like Billy Strings, Chris Thiele, guys like that, men and women like that, that are just supremely talented, but we just haven't gotten to play together. So it offers a lot of possibility because when you first meet somebody that you have a lot in common with, there are sparks.
4: Hmm. And that especially comes through in charm
3: school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I have a joke that I say on stage when I'm introducing that song, and I say that there are two kinds of bluegrass, traditional kind and the other kind. And this is the other kind.
4: Duke Ellington would approve. So this is the first bluegrass album you've released in over 20 years, and it's dedicated to two of your musical heroes who passed away last year, the pianist Chick Corea and singer-guitarist Tony Rice. Would you talk about dedicating this album to them?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so like for for Chick Corea, who was my hero, you know, and my jazz hero, my ultimate guy, I actually got to play with him for many years there near the end of his life, the last 15 years or so, I'm guessing. He had a record called My Spanish Heart. And if you know Chick's music at all, you assume he's got a Latin component because he always has Latin music in his playing. The Latin folks love him. He wins jazz, you know, Latin jazz awards and so forth. He's always collaborating with uh, flamenco musicians and so forth. So I always assumed he was, you know, Spanish or so or something, you know. Um, But when I got to know him, I discovered that he was actually an Italian guy from Chelsea, Massachusetts uh, near Boston. And so for some reason that struck me because I'm a so you know considered a bluegrass guy bluegrass informs everything I do and yet I'm from the Upper West Side of New York City and so that being one of my favorite records of his and album called my Spanish Heart I started thinking I wonder if my bluegrass heart would be a good title and uh, I knew I liked it for many reasons but uh, I actually asked him what he thought asked permission and he said of course you know it wasn't anything to him he was just fine with it so I stuck with that title But he was just a huge influence. He was always a guy who said rules are constructs and you have to make your own, develop your own ideas of what you wanna do and not be restricted by what other people think you should do. And it served him well. And it's been an incredible inspiration for me to play with him and get to know him. And he was a real mentor. And as far as Tony Rice, he was the cat, the kind of, um, I don't know, mysterious, incredible musician of bluegrass. We all thought he was the coolest guy we'd ever heard of. He played, uh, of course, an an incredible soloist, but we were talking about Tumani Diabati being such a great support player. Tony's Secret Weapon was this incredible rhythm guitar playing that made everybody play about five times better than they could ever play with anyone else. So when I made my bluegrass records, I always tried to get Tony, and he played on two very, very important records to me, one called Drive in 1988, and then the next one was Bluegrass Sessions. Uh, in, in 1999, which also had Earl Scruggs on it and John Hartford and Vassar Clements. And then it's kind of my dream team of Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and uh, Stuart Duncan and so forth, Mark Schatz. So the thing that was stopping me from making a bluegrass record for all these years is that Tony was becoming more and more of a recluse and wasn't wasn't up for it. You know, he wasn't able. And so I kept thinking, I can't do a record without Tony Rice. I can't do bluegrass without Tony. And that was part of why I didn't do it for 20 years. Oh. But at a certain point, it became clear that he wasn't coming back. And I had all these tunes that were burning a hole in my pocket. It was like, I'm going to forget these tunes. They're they're worth somebody hearing, you know, and um, I've got to move on, you know. And there was also a close call with one of my kids that happened where we, we didn't know what was going to happen, if he was going to oh. make it or not and um and it worked out fine he was fine um well it was very scary few days in the er but um after that for some reason that was the trigger that made me want to go do bluegrass again like life is too short people aren't going to be here forever there's an opportunity now and then that desire to reconnect with you know my community after kind of kind of a, not kind of a very traumatic family event which resolved itself just fine but um, so that's kind of the story. So at any rate, Tony was a hero and a friend, and he kind of went into a spiral and had physical problems and became a recluse and was basically unreachable. So at a certain point, as much as I loved him. And, and my goal was to actually send him the record and see if he'd write liner notes for it. But he passed away before I got that chance.
1: Hmm.
4: Well, thank goodness that your child is okay. I know that must have been harrowing.
3: It was a tough one, but, but like I said, it's history now. Good. We're all good.
4: Good. Bela Fleck, it has been fascinating to learn more about the root of your musical soul as you describe the banjo. Thank you so
3: much for talking with me. Thanks, Lois. I, I enjoyed it.
4: Grammy-winning
2: banjo virtuoso Bela Fleck, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Fleck is performing at the Eastern this Saturday, August 27th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll find out what happens when quintessential Atlanta music gets together with Japanese anime culture. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE, I'm Kim Droves, Inver Lois and it is great to have you along. International travel has the power to change people. By navigating our way around other countries, we get to broaden our horizons with new sights, smells, sounds, and we get to meet people that may be far different from ourselves. But travel can be expensive, and not everyone has the time or resources to hop on an overseas flight. If Japan has been on your bucket list, but you haven't been able to make the trip, the Trap Sushi Parties at Monday Night Brewery may be just what you're looking for. The bi-monthly event includes DJs dancing, made-to-order sushi, cosplay, and anime projected onto the walls. Musical artist Troop Brand and his wife, Stephanie Lindo, are the creatives behind Trap Sushi, and they join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Hello. So, Troop, I'd love to start with you and just find out when your interest in Japanese culture began.
0: So it started when I was uh, in middle school and my mom took me to like this thrift store and on one of the shelves, there was a Japanese manga and I was reading it and it was um, the first issue of Naruto and Naruto was a very, very popular um franchise now but I don't think it was back then and when I read it I was just so like in captured with it and it was so different from anything I've ever seen and I was like yo I, I really like this and that caused me to you know look up more and research more and you know it kind of all reached a peak when I was able to go to Japan and um you know see everything firsthand ever since that moment I actually picked up that Japanese manga I've been a big fan
2: and for the unfamiliar manga it's like a comic book right He's-
0: it's, it's it's japanese comic books yeah
2: perfect and so you mentioned you got to go as a teenager to japan how did that happen
0: yes yeah, so my dad is actually a pilot <laughs> i had been bugging him <laughs> for a long time about like actually going i was like yo you got to you got to bring me along and so he did and it was amazing you know i got to try you know authentic foods i got to see the culture And I also got stranded because he had to fly the plane back to the States. And, you know, I was doing standby. So the plane was full and he had to leave me. And you can bet my mom did not like that. (laughs) But it was it was an experience. And, you know, I made it back. But it was it was cool. It was cool.
2: <laughs> That's something a lot of people probably don't realize. When you have friends or family that work for airlines, they're they're able to get you, you know, buddy passes per se. Mm-hmm. But you are like the last person on the list who oh, gets yeah. to go on the flight. And they will leave you. <laughs> <laughs> and they will leave you. Exactly. So do you remember well enough to know what was your favorite part of that trip?
0: Oh, it must have been Tokyo. It had to have been Tokyo. It was so amazing. Even though we didn't, we didn't even stay there long, but it just looks so amazing. Just like the, the architecture and, you know, the technology. That was like the first time I was able to see like um, holograms, like used in like mm. advertisements. And it was so cool, and I'm so excited because this next Trap Sushi, we're actually going to have holograms there. Um, I was finally able to get my hands on some, and I am so excited because it's, it's all, like, coming back.
2: Oh, my gosh. I feel like we're skipping forward, but you have to elaborate on that. What does having holograms at Trap Sushi look like? So,
0: okay, so I guess the technology, it looks like a fan almost, but there are, like, LED lights attached to the fan, so it spins really, really fast. And it creates these images almost as if they're floating in midair. And pretty much we're just going to have anime characters just on these lights. And it's going to just provide this kind of fully immersive experience and really kind of transforming our venue space to look more like Japan.
2: Well, Stephanie, when you met Troop, did you know about his love of Japan? Did you share it? Or is that something you guys grew to love together?
5: That is actually surprisingly one thing that we shared. When we met, he got my Instagram page and he kind of like scoured it like most people do when they first. (laughs) And he went through my Instagram and he just happened to see that I had a lot of drawings that I did of different anime characters. And so he was just very excited. He was just like, oh my gosh, this girl, she likes anime too. So that is actually something I've always been into since middle school as well. That was also my first experience with anime. But yeah, that is definitely an interest that we share. So how did Trap
2: Sushi come to be?
0: It started with, it was myself. And this is when I was working with my other business partner. Her name was Erin Knight. And we actually did a lot of events together before we came up with Trap Sushi and we really wanted to, you know, make a space where we all would feel comfortable, you know, enjoying the things that we like. And I'm actually from Mississippi, but I've been in Atlanta for a long time and I love Atlanta. So it was kind of just combining those two aspects of the Atlanta culture and the Japanese culture. You know, this was around 2020. The first event was actually downtown on Edgewood. And it was really nice. And we saw the turnout. We saw many people liked it. And then the pandemic happened and we didn't do another one. But once things started clearing up Monday night garage, one of my friends there, his name's Anthony. He was the general manager of the that location. He reached out to me and was saying, hey, you know, would you guys want to bring Trap Sushi to our location? And we were like, yo, that's perfect. This is what we've been waiting for. And that's kind of how the partnership with them happened. And, you know, we've done it maybe like six Times I think, but it's hard to count because the pandemic like was a whole year without doing it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> but, pandemic time messed everybody up. Yes, yeah. that makes sense. So, Stephanie, what does a typical trap sushi party involve? So, a typical trap sushi
5: involves, of course, the sushi. <laughs> so that's another thing we love sushi. We like to say that we are experts in sushi. Oh, <laughs> do you know? Yeah, we love <laughs> sushi. We we eat all of it, and we're very critical of sushi. So. The sushi chef, we met him through a Japanese restaurant that we used to go to called Yuki Izakaya. It's over in Duluth off of Pleasant Hill. Yeah.
2: And she- um, That is one of the best. Yeah.
5: Oh, gosh. Well, when we used to live up there, we used to eat it. We So during quarantine, like during the shutdown, we I, I like to say we kept them in business because we kept them during <laughs> We were friends with the manager. So she introduced us, us to Chef Donnie. He is a sushi chef at Wagaya. And Wagaya is another sushi restaurant in Westmontown. And so Chef Donnie is our sushi chef at Trap Sushi. And so once you walk in, you'll see the tables, you'll see the food. We also tend to go to places like H Mart uh, or even Wagaya, Wagaya Groceries. They have their own Japanese grocery store. But we'll go and we'll buy Japanese snacks and we'll scatter them throughout the tap room. And so then once you go to the back of Monday night, they have this really large sliding wall. And so sliding that wall backwards, that's where you'll see the actual party. So all of our vendors are typically in the back in the chandelier room. The DJ is back there. Um, all the light installations that Troop is talking about is back there. We also have a car outfitted in anime. It's an Natasha car. We pull that into the garage to the brewery and we park it in the back, in that back room. So you're gonna find all of the exciting stuff in the back and in the front is where you're going to find food
2: and drinks at the bar. And one of the aspects that drew me to this is the cosplay element. Can you speak a little to that, Troop?
0: Yeah, so cosplay is a big, big part of the anime community. People do it all the time at these conventions. You know, they dress up in their favorite um, characters' outfits and uniforms. And, you know, they just go out and party in costumes. And pretty much that's kind of what is the safe space that makes Trap Sushi what it is, is you can come dressed as anything that you want to. You know, you want to have a good time. You can come have a good time dressed in character. And nobody's going to judge you or any things like that. And we have a cosplay competition with a cash prize, you know, that attracts multiple people each time and we only we normally only keep it to 10 participants so we encourage people to you know show up early to sign up and um get up screened by the judges so you can do the cosplay competition we normally play music when you walk down you know you can dance if you want to you don't have to and then you know we judge it and the first place winner gets a cash prize and the second place gets the an anime mystery bag
2: you're giving me the impression that this is pretty high end if People are coming and you're picking out only 10 to truly compete. People must be bringing their A-game. One of
0: the people who helps us is this group called Beltline Cosplay. And they're actually local here to Atlanta. And it's a group of cosplayers that, you know, hang out, have fun. And I I think that Marvel actually has a partnership with them where they give them, uh, you know, tickets to screen like every time that Marvel does a movie, they get the, the pre release tickets so they can um, always go to the screenings. So they're pretty nice. well,
2: good for them. So do you have any advice for people who might have never cosplayed before, but would like to give it a try? I could imagine, you know, there's maybe some fear about going out and being your best anime self. What would you say to encourage people?
5: So first and foremost, I will say that cosplaying can be very expensive. Mm. One reason why we included cosplay as a feature of our party, because we understand that most people who cosplay, they'll either make their cosplay or they'll buy something that's either made for them or something pre-made. And they'll go to a convention and they'll just wear it that one time because... Majority of the conventions are once a year. So that's one reason why we have cosplay as a part of our party is so that people are encouraged to rewear their cosplay because I know they either worked really hard on it or they spent a lot of money on it. So my Mm -hmm. encouragement for somebody who's never cosplayed before, um, I would probably buy my costume first if I've never done it before. Um, That takes a lot of the pressure off trying to make one especially if you're not really good at sewing. I'd also say that I would not be nervous about stepping out and cosplay whatsoever. You'd be surprised how big the anime community is in Atlanta. You'd be really, really mm. surprised. I mean, Anime Week in Atlanta and Momo are two of the biggest anime conventions, and they draw tens of thousands of people. So anime is something that, I feel is just now getting really popular in in the United States. When Troop and I were in middle school, it was not cool. So I had to hide (laughs) my love for anime and manga at the time, but now it's become very mainstream. So people don't really look at you as funny anymore as they did back then because it's just become so common. So if it was my first time cosplaying, I would not be worried whatsoever. And plus, you're going to be amongst like people when you get to the party anyway. So it's no big deal.
2: Yeah, I could imagine this is a very safe space for cosplayers.
5: Oh, it, it is. We have seen some crazy cosplay. I mean, we kind of got a little tapped on the on the back for this, but <laughs> one cosplayer came in and she cosplayed as what is it true Princess Mononoke? Yes. And she and so in that anime, it's a girl, she's like in the wild and stuff, and she has like a a, a wolf. And so the girl who cosplayed brought her dog. That looked like the wolf, and it was just really. It she did. She actually should have won. So we have seen (laughs) out of this world cosplay. I mean, one girl came in with a live snake. It just it it gets crazy. We have to set the rules. Yeah, we're crazy. No animals now, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The policy is no animals now. We cannot have animals at Trap Sushi, but people get very creative when you give them the freedom to do so.
2: So I know white wine goes well with fish. How do you figure out what makes a good trap sushi pairing with anime?
0: You know, sometimes it's not easy. (laughs) You know, with sushi being an element that it is, we sometimes try to pair it up with different roles. So our chef, he's really, really good with helping us come up with different roles, because sometimes he'll let us even name some of the sushi roles, and we try to pair it up with different anime. We try to pair it up with anime that is actually popular. Um, Sometimes we do do some deep cuts, but there's always new anime coming out, like, all the time. And, you know, with our projectors that we have there, we normally would screen, sometimes we would screen new episodes, and sometimes we would just play popular anime movies. So sometimes we do have a theme, to go with trap sushi and sometimes we just let it kind of be a free-for-all and we just you know play what you know may be popular at the time
2: have any of your attendees or collaborators been able to teach you guys anything about japanese culture that you didn't previously know i don't think so (laughs) stephanie do you think so (laughs) i don't
5: think so either that's actually a really really good question um i always tell troop i try to steer clear of Putting any type of Japanese on any of our marketing materials because we are not first, you know, Japanese like speakers. We're not fluent. Yeah. Um, So if there's anything anybody's taught us is probably how to spell something in the event we want to do it. I tried to learn Japanese on my own and it is actually very hard.
2: probably the understatement of the year yeah
5: it's pretty hard (laughs) i still have the alphabet pretty much memorized but well so here's the thing because we um because we do put out snacks you know just for free just so that people can try japanese snacks i am very anal about making sure the snacks are actually japanese so Mm. luckily i do have some background knowledge in um like the Japanese alphabet. So when we do go to the store and we buy Japanese candy or Japanese snacks, I always read it to make sure it's actually Japanese and not Korean and not Chinese or not anything like that, because I'm really big on making sure that things are accurate. And I don't want to, you know, I don't ever want us to get to a point where we're kind of just throwing things together and it can become kind of offensive. So we really try really hard to make it as accurate as
2: possible. So I've read that you guys might have uh, hopes to eventually turn this into an Atlanta Japanese music and food festival. Is that true?
0: That is one of my dreams. Um, so right now we're just taking you know the steps necessary to make sure that what we have is sustainable and also growing at a pace to where we don't alienate any anybody who has been with us from the beginning. And I know to reach the goal of having a music and food festival, it's going to take some time. And we're thankful that you know people who have already done it, like Momocon, have already reached out to us to lend a supporting hand. So I believe that it, it's going to get to that point. Um, but I know that it, it is going to take a lot of hard work, and it's going to take some wisdom and knowledge. <laughs>
2: Understood. It's a huge undertaking. And speaking of festivals, Dragon Con is around the corner. Do you guys have a presence at Dragon Con? Do you do any panels or do you have a group? No, we
0: don't. Um, I think we're just going to take our, probably take our team and we're just going to go.
2: Did you get to go last year?
0: We didn't get to go last year. um, And that's why I'm really excited about this year.
2: (laughs) Well, you have a new single called, of course, Sushi. Tell me about it.
0: Yeah, so sushi is a track with myself and one of my good friends Rex Evans, and we kind of got together. We're just listening through music, and I may have been even eating sushi at the time. <laughs> we basically were kind of singing about, you know, what would be our ideal like night out with uh, that special someone, and you know, we both kind of agreed, like, you know, you know, getting some sushi and maybe just going out to like a bar or something like that. That. That was it. That was pretty cool. That's like the vibe that we liked, you know. And we just kind of took that energy and put it into the song to make something that you can ride in your car to, you can nod your head along to. And you can also play in trap stuff. lights I'm on my way,
6: Say so you like the vibes, so come on tapping in. It. No I'm busy, ain't no problem. Link up after this. It ain't mine, but I'll say it's yours. Quick to catch a plane, come on, act like you want to. Oh, you think you famous. Me and them there's a difference, ain't it? Oh, you can't see it, I can show you better than I can say it.
0: Come on, make a ring. So it was it was it's a it's a good vibe, it's a good fun, kinda of uplifting song, but it also is a little bit, um in that sense of let's go out on a date night
2: and let's go have some fun. Troop Brand and Stephanie Lindo. The next Trap Sushi Party is happening this Thursday, August 25th at Monday Night Garage and more information is on our website wabe.org City Lights. Coming up we'll meet the youngest certified farmer in Georgia, six-year-old Kendall Ray Johnson. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A six-year-old Atlantan has set the example that you're never too young to learn how to farm. Kendall Ray Johnson is the youngest certified farmer in the state of Georgia. She is the owner of Agro Culture with a K Urban Farm in Southwest Atlanta, where she sells food baskets, subscriptions, donated food boxes, grow boxes, and she even hosts classes. Back in March, Kendall Ray joined host Lois as via Zoom along with her dad, Quinton Johnson. And the young farmer began by sharing what she loves most about farming.
7: Well, the most thing I do about farming is planting the soil.
4: There you go. And are you planting anything at the moment on your farm?
7: So my winter crop is call greens, beets, rashes, broccoli, cabbage.
4: Yum. That all sounds delicious. So you know about winter crops and spring crops and summer crops. and.
7: Yeah. Want me to tell you all my spring crops?
4: Please, I'd love to hear that.
7: So I'm growing apples, pears,
4: strawberries, blueberries. Oh, Kendall, this sounds so delicious. It also sounds like it must be... Very colorful. Do you have pictures of your crops?
7: Mm Mm-hmm. I have lots of pictures of my crops.
4: I can imagine that it's beautiful to see everything as it's already out of the ground. Do you have a favorite season for your crops?
7: My favorite season is the summertime. I love the warm
4: weather. Oh, and what what's in your garden in the summertime?
7: Oh, usually I grow peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers.
4: Yum. Kendall, do you also like to plant flowers?
7: Ooh, I love to plant flowers. So did my mommy.
4: Oh, and what are some of the flowers that you plant?
7: Uh, roses.
4: Wow, those are not easy to grow.
7: Yeah. So when the winter came, our uh, roses started to like be a little droopy.
4: Yeah. Well, so I get a little droopy in the winter too. You know, we all do. I read that carrots are your favorite. Vegetable Is that still true?
7: I love carrots.
4: What do you enjoy making with carrots?
7: Well, I enjoy making carrots with Miss Olivia.
4: With Miss Olivia?
7: Yeah. Miss Olivia is the best cook.
4: <laughs> what does she cook with you? What kind of carrot recipes does Miss Olivia cook with you?
7: Well... Carrot marine pie.
4: Yum! It sounds like you've got a winner with that.
7: Mhm. It's so delicious.
4: It sounds it. I think maybe have you sold those? I know you. You sell some of your.
7: No, we haven't sold that yet.
4: No, but that would be a good seller, I'm sure. Mr. Johnson Quinton, can you please tell us about the creation of agroculture? I love the name, in fact, for listeners because they can't see it. Would you spell the name of Kendall's farm? It's
6: agroculture with a K, so A and then the word grow. And then the word culture spelled out with a K.
4: Very clever.
6: Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a play on the word agriculture, but it represents a culture of progression. You know, just moving forward in whatever we do. So we try to promote positivity, especially in kids, but in everyone, and just try to be a shining light for everyone to see that if we if we share positivity with with each other, we can we can all grow together, and it's enough for everybody.
4: Hmm. What kind of food basket subscriptions does a grow culture urban farm offer?
6: Well, we, we offer like sampler of baskets during the, the springs and all the way up to the winter months. And then we do like collard green sales and stuff like that during the holidays. The baskets are like little sampler baskets where they, you might have like some tomatoes or carrots or. Um, cucumbers, whatever we have ready at the time. We put a little sampler basket together for the subscribers. Mm. Kendall,
4: how does it feel to be the youngest certified farmer in Georgia? That's quite a distinction. It's okay. great? <laughs> do you meet with other farmers who I imagine are mostly adults? hmm You do? What kind of information do you share with them or get from them?
7: Well, I might grow my plants.
4: Yeah, that would be worthwhile. I saw that you spoke at the Georgia Capitol for Women's Entrepreneurship Day. That would be women in business, and you are a young woman in business. Do you enjoy giving speeches?
7: Yeah, I enjoy giving speeches.
4: Well, I know you have YouTube videos for your followers, too.
7: Yeah, I love it when they love me, and I love it when, when they speak about me, and I like it when they inspire me.
4: Oh. Can you tell us, Quentin, what your hopes are, you and your wife? For Kendall creating the Agriculture Youth Development Program.
6: Well, I I hope it does what she set out to do because she has her own goals within the company. And her goals is to meet new friends, make new things, and inspire other kids. And that's what she wants to do. She wants to inspire other kids, talk to a lot of people, and create with a lot of other people. So that's what the, the program is pushing.
4: And why is teaching children and young people about farming great for their development?
6: Well, I think knowing the roots of what we need to survive and how it's made, where it comes from, just that uh, that raw, right down to the soil type of uh, education is important and it gives character and it, it helps to promote a more... Just a more sufficient human being out here in the world, more more positivity and stuff. Because that's that's really what we, we're we're about, spreading positivity and encouraging people to move forward and progress in what the things they like to do.
2: Quentin Johnson and six-year-old Kendall Ray Johnson, speaking with City Light's host, Lois Wrightis. More information about Kendall's farming company, AgroCulture, with a K, is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. It's time now to check in with City Lights music contributor, Vaughn Phoenix. Vaughn is the president and co-founder of the Atlanta media company, Punk Black, and each month he joins us to share music from the Punk Black community in our series, Punk Black To Go.
1: Greetings, my friends. I'm City Lights music contributor, Von Phoenix, and this is Punk Black To Go. For the unfamiliar, Punk Black is a media network that features people of color in the music, art, and cosplay community. Each month, I'll be joining the City Lights team to share music that I love from the Atlanta Punk Black scene. Before we get to that, I would actually like to tell the story of the first Punk Black. So, Punk Black started out as a stream of house parties in Atlanta, Um, and to be honest, from the first Punk Black, we did not expect to do more than one punk black. We just wanted it to be a one-off show, since our band Howling Star, which used to be credited Call Truth, decided that we wanted to have a show, you know, with featuring people of color to raise votes for an Afro punk lot love bands. And when we did the show, it turned out really, really well. I'm telling you, um, the biggest turnout that our band had at the time. People who came and told us, "Hey, we really need something like this in Atlanta. We've been looking for this," and we were like, "Oh man." We've also been looking for this this entire time. So since then, we've thrown, I think, over 165 shows in Atlanta and beyond, uh, featured hundreds of bands. It's turned out really well. We're really, really proud of it. Looking forward to doing more things this upcoming year, and it's gonna get crazy. (laughs) I don't wanna give you too many spoilers, but that's the beginning of Punk Black. And staying in that same vein, I would like to feature bands from punk black scene and before that a lot of people don't know about because changed their status or changed names. You're gonna dig it. This is gonna be a cool episode. So first up, we have Pussyfoot. Pussyfoot used to kill it on the punk black scene in Atlanta. I love to see them every time, fronted by this amazing woman named Jamira. Her voice, it's actually pretty insane how good her voice is. Even her whistles are nuts. I used to think I was a good whistler until I heard this woman whistle, and I was like, oh my God, I've never whistled before. Really, really good sound, sort of a mixture of pop, rock, hard rock, classic rock, a little bit of everything. (laughs) You'll see what I mean. Here's my favorite song from them called Cowboy. That was Cowboy by Pussyfoot. You can't find them on Instagram to follow them, but you can find more information about them at punkblack.com slash citylights. Now for a bit of an ancient band. Um, this band, <laughs> you know, they're not, it makes me sound like I'm saying they're crazy old. This band, Sound Detour, to me, it holds like a big place in my heart because my first beginning on the Atlanta scene started with Sound Detour. I was a huge, huge Sound Detour groupie had a crush on the singer, uh, had a crush on the whole band. I I love them so much. I used to hang out at every single band practice. They were like a really, really good genre blending band. Pop, rock, again, hard rock, sort of like Pussyfoot, but a little more, um, I I wanna say edgy. I wanna say a little more edgy. They were definitely my beginning into the Atlanta scene. I love them so much. I know you're gonna dig them as well. So here's my favorite song from them called Summer Hat.
7: And I could say, remember when you threw me in the shower And you said, you lost so much weight Remember how I said that I was
5: leaving And you said, you know we can't make you scream Maybe you were right, maybe you were
6: wrong Maybe I was never
1: That was Summer Hat by Sound Detour. Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this month. Thank you so much for listening. More information about the bands mentioned today is available on wabe.org slash City Lights. And of course, punkblack.com. For WABE City Lights, I'm Vaughn Phoenix. Please be safe out there and be kind to each other.
2: City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix and our series, Punk Black To Go. More information about Vaughn and Punk Black are on our website wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of art and culture. Tomorrow at 11am, we'll hear about Buy, Weight and Measure, a new science-themed bar from the creators of the popular Edgewood Hangout, Joystick. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website wabe.org/citylights. There, you'll find all of our recent stories, and you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzus. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Droves, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We are at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.